strong. Ash. Bone. And sickle. Bleeding saints and forest witches. The past unburied. The books unsealed. The old celebration returning. Hello and welcome to my study. Please, have a seat. Uh, to my right here is the gentleman who, uh, thanks to his exceptional vocal qualities, will be reading from our source books in this episode. I'd like to introduce my trusted valet, Wilkinson. Pleased to meet you. Looking around at the many books and artifacts here, you may not realize what maintenance it all involves. Uh, that falls to Wilkinson, who does a fine job of keeping things clean and orderly, but on occasion there are little extras, uh, like setting traps for rats. I only bring it up because it happened to give me an idea for this episode's topic, the rats. Nothing to worry about, there won't be any scurrying into your lap or anything. It's more of a precaution. Which well, probably nothing. The traps haven't even been touched. No, of course you won't see anything right now. It's not night. It's not their time. But they're here. And if they are, they'll soon be taken care of. He doesn't believe me. He doesn't like to set traps. Well, it's no bother, sir. I just haven't happened to hear anything myself. It's not that kind of sound. It doesn't mean they're not here. The plumbing doesn't make any sound, but it's in the walls. Would you deny the presence of plumbing? That would be more of a silent presence. Yes, a presence that only makes itself known at night. Like ghosts. Think of them as ghosts if that helps. You don't have to trap them and see their dead bodies to know they're real. Well, of course. Ghosts being dead, somewhat dead. They're not obliged to show themselves to be real. It's not all about us, you know. You'll just have to trust me on this. There are rats in the walls. Twenty-four of them. Of course, sir. I've set the traps. Peanut butter, not cheese, right? Crunchy. Fine. The facts will speak for themselves. We're wasting time. Let's start the show. We have a mystery to deal with. Episode 7. It is 100 years since our children left. For those who haven't tuned in before, I am your host, Al Reidenauer. Our topic for Bone and Sickle is more or less the intertwining of horror and folklore, often with some weird or macabre bits of history sprinkled on top. I started all this as a way to expand upon material related to my book, the Krampus and the Old Dark Christmas, as well as topics I'm researching for a new book along similar lines. Now, to return to that little extermination problem I was discussing with Wilkinson, that is, namely... But it's not the rats themselves we'll be focusing on. For those who haven't guessed, a little hint from 
Mr. Hurdy Gurdy, Sunshine Superman, singing. I'm very good with rats, with rats. In 1973, Scottish rocker Donovan Leitch actually portrayed this character in a mostly forgotten and not particularly child-friendly film by Jacques Demy. People call me the Pied Piper. People call me the Pied Piper. Yes, they do. Unfortunately, Donovan's song did not end up in the final film, nor was it particularly successful. Not as successful as Del Shannon's 1961 hit. Actually, don't follow Del Shannon unless you want to be found with a 22 caliber hole in your head, slumped amid your gold records, as happened February 8th, 1990. That's true horror. But now, some folklore. We all grew up assuming the Pied Piper was simply a fairy tale, which it is. But there is a dreadful kernel of truth in it. The mass abduction, migration, or death of the children of the city of Hamlin. The first written allusion to the incident is the very first sentence of Hamlin's Town Chronicle, the entry written 1384, it is 100 years since our children left. There is also a worn inscription on the gable of a house from the 1500s, now nicknamed the Pied Piper's House, which adds to the story. The date of the disappearance, it says, was June 26, 1284, the Feast of St. John and St. Paul. The number of children it gives, 130. And the loss occurred through a piper, it says, one dressed in pied or multicolored clothing. He led them off to Calvary near the hills. The allusion to Calvary, the site of Christ's crucifixion, has been taken as an allusion to a sort of fate or martyrdom or even execution. The word used for the hills could designate generic plural hills in German, or it may have been a proper noun for a specific hill. A painting from 1592 adds to the story showing the piper and children heading toward what appears to be a cave or cleft opening in a mountain. And finally, around 1560, a plague of rats is attached to the story. So what is that story? Just as a refresher, it begins with... Rat, rat, rat. They chase the dogs and kill the cat. The citizens realize... We gotta get rid of the rat, get rid of the rat in Hamelin Town. The mayor is ready to do anything to solve the problem, even dip into the town treasury. At this point, our flamboyantly dressed stranger arrives. I'll rid your town of rats. I'll take the bag of gold. And the stranger playing his pipe draws out the vermin, leading them into the Vesa River where they drown. But the mayor has second thoughts about his offer. A bag of gold? Ha! You crazy loon! I all you did was pipe a tune. All you did was pipe a the Piper, of course, leaves angrily, only to return on June 26. The music from his pipe this time draws all the children out after him as they head off into the mountain, never to be seen again. Along with the magic pipe, one more thing we know is purely a storyteller's edition is the rats, especially by the way the Piper kills them. Rats won't drown. They can swim for up to three days straight. It seems odd that German storytellers would not know this, especially as swimming rats, or mice, uh, figure prominently into another German legend, 
a rather horrific one. Uh, one, therefore, I think is worthy of a little side trip. Throughout the tourist season, cruise ships along the Rhine direct the attention of sightseers to a small tower on an island just downstream from the town of Bingen. It's called the Moiseturm, or Mice Tower, sometimes Mouse Tower in English. Legend associates it with Hato II, a 10th century Archbishop of Mainz. The story was one collected by the brothers Grimm, but also was retold by the English Romantic poet Robert Southey in his 1799 poem, God's Judgment on a Wicked Bishop. It begins with a famine, bringing the starving population to Hato's door. Southey describes the bishop's less than charitable response. At last Bishop Hato appointed a day to quiet the poor without delay. He bade them to his great barn repair, and they should have food for the winter there. Then when he saw it could hold no more, Bishop Hato, he made fast the door. And while for mercy on Christ they call, he set fire to the barn and burnt them all. In faith, tis an excellent bonfire, quoth he, and the country's greatly obliged to me for ridding it in these times forlorn of rats that only consume the corn. Hato's words come back to haunt him as a plague of actual rats swarm toward his castle, in some versions emerging from the brain barn itself. Seeing no way to secure himself in the castle, he leaps into a boat and makes for the safety of the island and its isolated tower. From the top of the tower, he hears them gnawing their way in and knows his time is not long. And in at the windows and in at the door, and through the walls helter-skelter they pour, and down from the ceiling and up through the floor, from the right and the left, from behind and before, from within and without, from above and below, and all at once to the bishop they go. They wetted their teeth against the stones, and now they picked the bishop's bones. They gnawed the flesh from every limb, for they were sent to do judgment on him. A lovely story, uh, a bit too good to be true. Unfortunately, the uh, connection made between the tower and ravenous mice is generally said to come from the actual historical purpose of the tower, which was for collecting toll. And uh, confusion arose, or the words for toll, mount, and uh, mouse in German uh, were con somehow conflated, and hence the story. Further demonstrating its folkloric nature are other very similar tales of wicked bishops being pursued by mice in Strasbourg and Cologne, uh, in a castle in Lake Constance, uh, and on a small island Bavarians call Mouse Island. There's also an unpopular 12th century Polish king, Popiel, who meets the same end. Uh, in Scandinavia, the murderer of St. Newt was eaten by rats. Tietmar of Merseburg in the 10th century writes of a wicked knight pursued by vermin. The knight actually has his servant suspend him in a wooden box by a rope in an attempt to evade the horde. But uh, when the box is lowered, it's found to contain nothing but a skeleton picked clean of flesh. While not quite instruments of divine wrath, as in the Hato legend, uh, the idea of rats meeting out a much-deserved punishment 
is also featured prominently in the 1971 film... Willard is a social outcast, bullied in particular by his boss, who has stolen the family business from Willard's deceased father. After being pushed a bit too far, Willard ends up training the rats to tear up his enemies. Tear him up! No, and though Socrates did not survive the film, another of Willard's rats lived on in a sequel. Where Willard ended, Ben begins. But for its title song, sung by a young Michael Jackson, the film might be completely forgotten. When Willard was remade in 2006 with the incomparably eccentric Crispin Glover in the title role, it was promoted with a music video in which Glover offers his own interpretation of the song. I've arranged it so you can hear first the original, Glover's cover after that, and then a duo between what may be the two most outlandish personalities in the entertainment industry. Hamlin is not the only city telling this tale of a musician luring away children. In Brandenburg, Germany, they tell of a hurdy-gurdy player who abducts the town's children. In Korneuburg, uh, Austria, there's a fountain dedicated to their piper who sells the kidnapped children in a slave market in Constantinople. In Germany's Hartz Mountains, a bagpiper exterminates the young females of a village with his killer bagpipe. England's Isle of Wight even has its own Pied Piper who leads the children of the town of Newton into a forest. In Sweden, there's a related tale. No rats in this one, but there's a musical abduction of the young of a particular village, and it's remembered in a well-known song, which you are hearing. In any case, the story goes something like this. In the village of Horga, near the Horga mountain, the youth are given to dancing late on Saturday before church. On a midsummer Saturday, just before dawn, a stranger appears at the dance with his fiddle and begins playing. The music is fast and wild, and those who wish to leave cannot tear themselves away. Even as the fiddler leads them from the hall and up the slopes of the horga, they cannot stop. As morning bells call the dancers to church, one girl is able to break the spell, throwing herself to the ground, where she sees that beneath the long coat of the fiddler are hooves. Atop the mountain, the fiddler's victims cannot stop their dancing, dancing, and dancing as their misery grows, dancing as the sun sets and rises and sets, never stopping, even as the flesh shakes from their rattling bones. They 
dance on till nothing remains of them to dance but skulls rolling on the ground. So back to the Piper and to various historical explanations for this mass disappearance. One theory is that the Piper is simply a symbolic representation of the Grim Reaper. Death was frequently represented as a musician leading a dance no mortal could resist in the medieval dance of death or danse macabre trope. In particular, perhaps thanks to the rats, the plague has been suggested as a cause, but the Black Death did not arrive in Europe until 1347, 50 years after the incident. Probably the most widely accepted theory for the disappearance posits that uh, Hamlin's children, understood here more as the young or the next generation, were recruited to settle the frontiers in Pomerania or the Czech Republic. Grimm's 1816 version mentions Transylvania, and family names and other linguistic cues have been cited as evidence for these uh, transmigrations. It's also been suggested that Hamlin's youth left to take part in the Children's Crusade, an effort to retake the Holy Lands not by warfare, but by the uh, evangelizing presence of children. However, the Children's Crusade was supposed to have happened in 1212, not 1284. Uh, how or whether the Crusade happened at all is also subject to debate. Now, there are two accounts, two different accounts, one German, one French, of Children's Crusades, which seem to have become conflated and likely embroidered over the years. Uh, in Germany, the Crusade was supposed to have been organized by a young shepherd, Nicholas of Cologne, inspired by God to travel to Italy, where upon reaching the ocean, the waters would miraculously part for them to cross to the Holy Land. As you can imagine, it, it did not go well. If the children of Hamlin joined in this adventure, it could have constituted the Calvary or martyrdom suggested by the inscription on the gable. The young crusaders from Germany were said to have become separated, crossing the Swiss Alps, where they died off in droves. A remnant reaching Pisa were encouraged by sensible citizens there to abandon the mission and take up residence in that town, which most of them did. Nicholas himself, however, said to have gone on to Rome, where he was exhorted by the Pope to return to his parents. Um, a second homeward passage through the Alps, however, spelled doom for the few remaining, and Nicholas never returned to his mother or his father, who had meanwhile been lynched by families who had lost children in the undertaking. Another colorful theory suggests it was religious zeal of a very different kind that led to the children's disappearance. I'll just call this one the pagan extermination theory. It's recently been promoted by Gernot Husam, a historian from the town of Kopenbrugge, about 30 miles north of Hamlin, where, Husam believes, Hamlin's youth met their fate, either through accident or through execution by Christian powers that be. Uh, Husam connects with the Kopen mountain, mentioned uh, in the Gable inscription, and he finds the uh, nearby Ober mountain uh, marked on old maps as the Kopen mountain. So uh, it's part of the uh, IT, it's a I-T-H actually, IT mountain range or ridge, uh, an area famous for its grotesquely shaped 
rock formations, uh, each with its own evocative name and associated legend. Since the 18th century, the area has been understood as sacred to the ancient Germans. Whether true or not, the site has been embraced by modern groups practicing magic. Husam relates, I went up there on Midsummer's night, the 21st of June, in fact, while it was still twilight and almost dark. When I reached the Barkelstein, what should I see but votive candles adorned with flowers on the dish-shaped stone? They were still burning, mind you. There, in the middle, lay the severed neck of a swan, a remarkable sight. Husam also finds significant the proximity of the June 21st date of the summer solstice and the June 26th date uh, indicated for the children's disappearance. Uh, he and others have speculated that heathen revels uh, celebrating the occasion um, could have attracted restless youth from Hamlin who were eager for a night of dancing and sexual liberties. Another feature of the area is the uh, Teufelskuche, as Devil's Kitchen or Devil's Cauldron. Uh, it's a treacherously swampy area where some believe the Hamelin youth could have met their end, not swallowed into a mountain perhaps, but swallowed into the earth. The ongoing geological activity of the region, which is located on a fault line, also is called upon to explain the disappearance uh, via sinkholes or avalanches. Husam suggests that the pagan revels associated with this site trouble the local nobility and church, and that for their interest in such unchristian activities, the young people may have been intentionally trapped within one of the area's many caves or buried in a well-timed landslide. A theory which seems to me pleasingly theatrical and improbable in equal measure. A final theory, and perhaps the best one, to explain the disappearance of the Hamelin youth is the uh, medieval dancing plague, or dancing mania, sometimes also called the St. Vitus Dance. Throughout uh, mainland Europe, beginning in the 11th century and running all the way up into the 1600s, it seems that groups of people, ranging from dozens to thousands, were seized by an uncontrollable desire to dance, or leap about wildly for days, weeks, or even months at a time, usually to the point of exhaustion and sometimes death. Explanations for this behavior are hard to come by in contemporaneous writings, and its cause remains much debated today, but the phenomenon is well documented. So this theory keeps the piper as a literal musician participating in or leading a sort of wild dance. Imagining the children of Hamlin dancing after this uh, piper is, uh, in fact, not really so different from what happened in 1257 in the German town of Erfurt, a couple of hours to the south. There, it's reported that 1,000 children left the town furiously dancing, leaping, and singing, uh, traveling 15 miles to the town of Arnstadt. Some died en route, but uh, most arrived exhausted and were eventually returned to their homes where they continue to suffer from lifelong trembling in their limbs. Thirty years later, in 1278, another group of 200 hysteric dancers jumped so wildly on a bridge over the river Maas in Germany that it collapsed.
Between 1373 and 1376, the phenomenon was particularly virulent. And because the dancers tended to migrate as a mass, the mania easily spread in those years through Germany along the Rhine and into France, Luxembourg, and south to Italy. In 1518, Strasbourg was overcome with a well-documented outbreak, beginning with a single woman and within a month swelling to 400 dancers. While some doctors uh, in Strasbourg suggested that bleeding might be a cure, uh, city fathers, oddly, listened to others saying that the only cure for dancing mania was, in fact, more dancing. So it was decided to repurpose a guild hall and a grain market as dancing areas, construct a stage and hire musicians. More exhaustion, illness, and death were the result. Since this mania proved to be contagious, could Hamlin have hired a piper to lead the dancers beyond the city walls before the whole city was infected? Perhaps it was conceived as some temporary measure, but some unexpected evil befell the children once they were removed. And the colorful wardrobe of the piper might also be related to the powerful influence color seemed to exert over the dancers, red being mentioned most often as abhorrent and green sometimes mentioned as attractive. All of this, of course, is just speculation. Other peculiar reactions noted in some reports of dancers include dramatic aversions to the sight of people weeping and to pointed shoes. It's also recorded that dancers enjoyed having their feet whipped to encourage more dancing, I'd guess. A passage from the 1835 volume, The Epidemics of the Middle Ages, by Justus Friedrich Karl Hecker, helps convey the extremes of the times. They formed circles hand in hand and appearing to have lost all control over their senses, continued dancing, regardless of the bystanders, for hours together in wild delirium. They neither saw nor heard, but were haunted by visions. Their fancies conjured up spirits whose names they shrieked out, and some of them afterwards asserted that they felt as if they had been immersed in a stream of blood which obliged them to leap so high. Others during the paroxysm saw the heavens open and the Savior enthroned with the Virgin Mary. Of course, the church figure most associated with the phenomenon is St. Vitus. So, why St. Vitus? Well, there's a custom documented in the 16th and 17th century in Germanic and Latvian areas that involved manic dancing before a statue of the saint on his day, and this was said to bring a year of good health. Naturally, Vitus became the patron of those afflicted with the mania as well, and dancers in general. Pilgrimage to his shrine was said to offer a cure to the dancing sickness. So, we seem to have a suggestion that uh, Vitus was both the cause and the cure of the plague, just like music itself. Occasionally, the phenomenon was also referred to as the Dance of St. John, whose June 24th feast day is even closer to the Hamlin date. Uh, dancing associated with St. John's Day could be a remnant of a pagan midsummer tradition, as the two were always associated. As I've said earlier, there are certain survivals of this uh, kind of dancing. 
In Ashtonach, Luxembourg, every Whit Tuesday, which is the uh, eighth Tuesday after Easter, uh, the town celebrates a Sprangprozession, a uh, hopping procession, along a mile-long route ending at the tomb of St. Uh, Willebrod. Uh, the custom is believed to go back to at least the mid-1300s and is sometimes explained as originating with the celebration of uh, an averted plague. Over 10,000 people annually end up in the city every year dancing uh, to the tune you hear. So, perhaps the children of Hamelin hopped and skipped to their doom during the years of the Dancing Plague. Perhaps they disappeared to some far-off land, or maybe they were cured by St. Vitus. If they had reached Italy as young crusaders or as insane dancers, they might have found relief at a very strange place, the Chapel of the Tarantula. We'll be getting there ourselves shortly. So, the name of this spider comes from the southern Italian uh, port town of uh, Taranto, the same town, incidentally, where someone with the name Tarantino would originally hail from. The creature that we know as the tarantula is a bit different than the spider famous in that area. There, it uh, designates a type of uh, wolf spider, Lycosa tarantella. The bite of this Italian spider, which modern science regards as no more consequential than a bee sting, is the subject of a strange superstition. 18th century writer Francesco Cancellieri uh, describes it thus. When one is in the hold of this ill-wished beast, one has a hundred different feelings at a time. One cries, dances, vomits, trembles, laughs, pales, cries, faints, and one will suffer great pain, and finally, after a few days, if unaided, you die. Sweat and anecdotes relieve the sick, but the sovereign and the only remedy is music. Naturally, the favored music of the region is prescribed, and this is the Tarantella. You may have heard this name without knowing exactly what it designated, but you do know some Tarantellas. Like sufferers of the dancing plague in Strasbourg, with Tarantism, the name given the phenomenon, um, the disease is also the cure. It must be danced out. But the behaviors exhibited often go far beyond anything we would rightly describe as dancing. Uh, Wilkinson will read some of the other symptoms listed. Convulsions, ecstatic visions, gulping wine, whipping and being whipped by fellow dancers, ripping off clothes, lewd gestures, crawling on floors and climbing on pillars, rolling in dirt, gnashing of teeth, imitating animals, and leaping into the sea. Found throughout southern Italy, the phenomenon was first noted in the 11th century, becoming more prevalent in the 13th and particularly common in the 16th and 17th century. And it did not exactly disappear. Religious history professor uh, Ernesto de Martino uh, studied 35 cases occurring in Apulia between 1957 and 1960, uh, filming some for a documentary that in Italian is called The Land of Remorse, which I'll link on the site and which you can hear in the background. 
And so our last story is about the Chapel of the Tarantula. The uh, Apulian town of Galantina, which became the center of Tarantism, has a special devotion to St. Paul. And central to this is a chapel dedicated to St. Paul, but known locally as the Chapel of the Tarantula. To understand more about all this, we need to know a Bible story describing St. Paul trying to warm himself at a fire after being shipwrecked on the island of Malta, which is not far away from Galantina. When Paul gathered a bundle of sticks and laid them on the fire, there came a viper out of the heat and fastened on his hand. And when the barbarians saw the venomous beast hang on his hand, they said among themselves, No doubt this man is a murderer, who, though he hath escaped the sea, yet vengeance suffereth not to live. And he shook off the beast into the fire and felt no harm. On his way back to Rome, Paul was said to have stopped at uh, our town of Galantina, where he was put up by a noble family. In exchange for the hospitality, Paul blessed two sisters, the Farina sisters, with the ability to heal the bites of snakes, scorpions, and, of course, tarantulas. Uh, key to the sisters' treatment was the application of their blessed saliva. Uh, this healing power was transferred to the water of a well attached to the family's chapel to St. Paul. The manner in which the water of this well was imbued with this power? Well, before dying, the Farina sisters had the foresight to spit in the well. And so for centuries, the chapel and its well became a pilgrimage site for those afflicted with uh, Tarantism. There they would pay devotion to Paul, drink copiously from the well, and fall prostrate amid the musicians, slowly rising in a manic dance, and at its climax, vomiting up the well water as a sign that the exorcism was complete. Unfortunately, this ancient tradition was brought to a halt in the 1960s, by which point it had come to be regarded as um, embarrassingly primitive. The chapel once again became private property, and the well was bricked up as unhygienic. And it probably was, as the custom of the dancers was to vomit the holy water directly back into the well from which they drank. And on that unpleasant note, I believe we'll end our show. Well, except for one final thought. In hearing the biblical story, the notion that Paul must be a murderer because a snake had been sent to bite him reminded me of how very old and ingrained this notion is that of higher justice dealt out by lowly animals. We found it in the medieval story of Bishop Hato, even in the story of Willard and his rats, and in the story of... Been the two of us no more. I do hope everyone's been enjoying our show and will continue listening to future episodes. Shows are uploaded on Mondays every other week, and please do like and comment where and whenever you can. Uh, reviews and shares via social media are also very important for the continuance of the program. The Incorrigibly Curious can also visit the website bonandsickle.com, all one word, where you can find show notes, images, and video of topics mentioned in the podcast. You'll also find links there to our social media pages, and I would be happy to meet you in Twitter and uh, our Facebook group. There's also a Patreon link where you can donate to support uh, 
This um, extremely labor-intensive undertaking, Patreon members have a choice of gifts and incentives, including exclusive access to extra bits of the podcast, uh, digital downloads of rare books used in the preparation of the show, uh, episode soundscapes, and other audio, as well as a signed 8x10 photo of our beloved Wilkinson suitable for any sort of adulation. Your donations in any amount help me to continue bringing you to the show as a regular bi-monthly download. I'd like to thank Jason Dorff, Pamela Fitzpatrick, and Blake Smith of the excellent podcast Monster Talk for their recent and very generous donations. Uh, the show is written and produced by me, Al Reidenauer, and Wilkinson is played by Rick Gallagher. Thanks so much for listening. <laughs>